Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS, presenting The Facebook Dilemma, a frontline investigation into Facebook's impact on privacy and democracy that asks whether it's uniting or dividing us. Tune in or stream starting Monday at 9 Eastern on PBS. It's the Plus One Podcast from All Songs Considered. I'm Robin Hilton, and this week we've got guest host and NPR music producer and reporter Anastasia Tsoukas. Uh, she'll be talking with the jazz saxophonist and composer Ravi Coltrane. Ravi Coltrane, of course, is the son of the legendary John Coltrane, but his mother, Alice Coltrane Turiya Sangita Nanda, was also a musician and a spiritual leader. She founded an ashram back in the 1970s that often had worship ceremonies with music like this. Alice Coltrane Turiya Sangeeta Nanda died in 2007, but recordings of those performances at her ashram are out now on a remarkable compilation called World Spirituality Classics 1, The Ecstatic Music of Alice Coltrane Turiya Sangeeta Nanda. So in this conversation with Anastasia Tsilkas, Ravi Coltrane talks about what it was like growing up in a house filled with music, what it was like playing and recording with his mom, and how this compilation album came to be. You know, my mother was just a very prolific musician, I would say, first and foremost. She played music in the house every day. I'd come home from school, and she'd be at the piano or at the organ, you know, playing these quiet sort of hymns, and it was something really beautiful. I wish I'd taken more notice of it as a kid. It was always sort of on the periphery when I had my focus on something else, cartoons or cereal or... But right. that's the thing about being a kid. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think kids miss sort of the bigger arc. Yes, for sure. <laughs> and music was such a big part of her life. And she had found this way to combine it with her spiritual slash religious sort of goals. This music is, uh, yeah, it's a product of those goals, those ambitions. She made this music essentially for her students, just to kind of document the songs that they had been using for worship and for part of their ceremonies. And she was at it all the time. I mean, she recorded so much of that music, you know. How much do you think is there in some recording? Uh, I mean, there's uh, years and years and years and years worth of recordings. So how did these recordings come to be on this Well, um, they were never officially released. There wasn't a commercial release from That wasn't the purpose of this music. And it actually took a bit of soul-searching for me and my siblings before we decided that the music should be released commercially. And that decision was made because, you know, a lot of this music was starting to be bootlegged and, <laughs> and sort of unofficially released in different parts of the world. And my mother kind of distributed them to her students. They weren't ever really for sale, but the tapes did sort of get out there. <laughs> and I then, think hardcore... Alice Coltrane fans had at least heard about them, or as you said, they were circulating. Yes, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, with the internet, it made it much easier to circulate these tapes. So, yeah, so we felt it was a good time to maybe do a formal release of some of this material. What I love about them is really a strong grounding in Hindu tradition, like the kirtan, the call and response tradition, the bhajan tradition of devotional songs but these incredible inflections of her roots in mm-hmm. the Christian church as a kid, in obvious, of course, jazz, and then sort of this super layers of cosmic <laughs> <Yes>. synthesizer sound. <laughs> well, I think you've said it perfectly. Those are all the primary components, you know. And again, it was something very organic and natural for her to combine those musical elements, you know. Oh, Shanti Om Shanti Om Shanti Om 
passed in 2007, right? Mm-hmm. Ten years ago. Yes. Almost, yeah. right? At the end of her, towards the end of her life, I had the incredible pleasure of meeting her once with you yeah. backstage at Joe's Pub. I'm sure you don't remember <laughs> it. I remember it. <laughs> but remember that show that... You, I do. Of course you remember of the course. show at Joe's yeah. Pub. Yeah. And yeah. it was such an incredible and frankly transcendent experience to see you guys on, mm. on stage and and your brother played. That's true. Um, That's true. And it was an incredible experience. And and I should say here that you and I first met because um, my husband Josh Sherman signed you to Savoy. Uh, yes. Savoy Jazz, and you guys made a couple of records. Two, yeah, a couple two. of my favorite records. Oh, that's actually. so nice of you yeah. to say. Yeah. I didn't pay Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, yeah, so we got to know each other a bit, and um, it was it was an incredible experience to see her with you on stage, and I wonder in retrospect if those experiences, I mean, you guys played together in New York, and then there were other shows, mm-hmm. if things had been different time-wise, would that have been something you would want to have done more of? I mean, I think you, I always got the feeling you would have liked to see her Oh, of course. About more. Of course, of course, of course. Yeah, that still uh, exists as a beautiful dream for me. She passed uh, unexpectedly and, and suddenly, you know, and only 69. And we did have plans to do more uh, concerts in that following year, in the year 2007. And, of course, she was still uh, active in recording. But, yeah, that was um, the Joe's Pub gig was, uh, what year was that? That was maybe 2002. 2003? 2002. That I had to look at. <laughs> <laughs> I will to having to have looked that up. Yeah, that was kind of um, an interesting concert. Verve was doing a release, a John Coltrane release. Uh, it was a re-release of A Love Supreme. <laughs> a re-re-re-release of A Love Supreme. <laughs> I think they called it the special edition. Sure, think, there's uh, always a way of there's, yeah, <laughs> I think there's been a few more special editions even since that particular one. But they wanted to do kind of a, like a release sort of event at Joe's Pub. I think they asked if, you know, my mother would want to come out and be a guest. But my mother, yeah, she... She, you know, once she got into her spiritual practice and direction and, and really put all of her time and energy there, she, you know, she rarely performed live, you know. So, yeah, they were they were grand occasions, I think, in many, many ways. I remember lots of people at that uh, town hall concert told me that they, you know, they'd driven from, you know, uh, Virginia to come here. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, people had really, I mean, they came out of the woodworks to see her. And, um, and when she performed at Joe's Pub, in 2002, um, there were many people there, including yourself. Uh, Josh was there, I'm assuming. He was. <laughs> I mean, very happily so. I mean, a lot of people who had never heard her before. People who were familiar with her music and her past, of course, but had never heard her play live. So people got very, very excited, very, very excited. And and, um, and about a, less than a week later, I got a call from a lot of the folks at uh, Verve, and they were saying, you know, would your mom like to do a, a record with us? <laughs>
You know, and it's funny because we had done some recording initially. When they did call me after the Joe's Pub concert and asked me if Alice would want to record, I said, we started a recording. And I said, but we'd love to finish it. That's really kind of how it came to be. Originally, man, I was still on RCA Victor uh, when we started recording. The first sessions for Translinear Light were maybe in uh, the year 2000. And initially that... We were gonna do a, <laughs> we were gonna, we were gonna do an unusual record with just a trio, Jack Dejanet, my mother, and myself. And we did do some sessions just with that group. Then I lost my deal with RCA. <laughs> and uh, but fortunately, there are vagaries to the record business. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, it was it was it was in the air. It was every, everyone was losing their deals. But uh, but fortunately, I did own the recordings. I you know we, it was a session that we paid for ourselves. So when Verve stepped in. We basically had a, a third of the record done, and I recorded the rest of it the following uh, the following few years. I was wondering if you'd be willing to indulge me and listen to one of my favorite tracks.
Tell me a little bit about what we were just listening to. It's Triloco with Charlie Hayden. Yeah, that piece was recorded in, uh, in Los Angeles, and it was probably one of the last things that we recorded for the album. And it's kind of a beautiful, it's definitely a beautiful testament to both of them. It is, it is. It's, a, it's an incredible dialogue between the two. I mean, and that's really what it is. It's completely free and, and open improvisation. Charlie had arrived to the studio to do some uh, corrections on some other tracks, and my mother was in the studio recording with another group. We did some tracks with James Genus and Jeff Watts and myself. Just for the jazz uninitiated, James Genus on bass. Bass and, 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 Jeff, and Jeff. Jeff Tane Watts on drums, James Genus on bass. My mother was actually leaving the studio when Charlie was arriving. So it wasn't really even planned that the two of them would record that day. And Charlie, <laughs> you know, he saw my mom leaving as he was entering, and he was like, hey, can we play one? You know, he said, hey, man, can we can we play one, you know? And my mother had a unique sort of way about her. When it was time, it was time. When it wasn't time, it wasn't time. We had, we'd booked these very long sessions, but again, she'd come in, <laughs> and an hour later, she'd say, okay, I think that's good for today. <laughs> I'd say, Ma, we blocked the whole studio up. We got another eight, eight hours. So she's like, no, I, th- I think that we, we got it today. We'll come back tomorrow and do some more. So I think she was ready to leave the studio, but Charlie had arrived, and he started to suggest, you know, the two of them play something together. It was very spontaneous. I had no idea that it was actually going to happen. Charlie was going to be in this booth doing these corrections, but we moved all the mics out to the main room, set them up, right next to the piano. At the beginning of that track, you can actually hear my footsteps. I'm leaving the studio <laughs> as, they, as they begin to play. Literally, my mom... Oh, she, I, wait, wait, was that intentional? Were you <laughs> <laughs> I kind of, I told the engineer, I said, as soon as my mom returns to the studio, just run the tape, just start rolling it. And it was, again, they barely even discussed what they were gonna do. And the minute that she sat down at the piano, she began to play, and then Charlie began to play, and I tiptoe out, <laughs> and they, you know, they improvised together, dialogued together, spoke to each other in a beautiful way for several minutes, and uh, she played that last chord and literally stood up while she it, the chord was still sustaining. <laughs> she bowed a little bit, and uh, she uh, she was off. In the Her night. work was done. <laughs> yeah, it was done. Yeah, and I remember Charlie saying, "He said, wow, man.'" <laughs> He said, you, you took me on a journey, and I was right there with you. It was uh, actually very, very, very beautiful to hear them, to watch them to make music uh, so perfectly and, and spontaneously and beautifully. It was, uh, it was easily the, the highlight of the recording session for me. Wow. Well, again, that was Triloco with Alice Coltrane and Toya Sanki Tananta on piano and Charlie Hayden on bass. And it really is a, there's something very, very profound there that I just love. So thank you. And speaking of that sort of journey, I'm wondering if you would be willing to pick out one of the selections on this new collection. Rama Rama. Okay, sure. Sure, sure.
I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that's my mom. What speaks to you in that? It evokes so much for me. It's probably not even possible for me to really articulate, um, you know, how that music affects me, you know. She just, she had a lot of uh, passion and a lot of spirit and a lot of soul. <laughs> I mean, it's in every note, it's in every inflection, and it's in every chord, every voicing. She really knew how to communicate through sound, she really knew how to, to reach that higher place, you know, with her music. There's so much harmonic spaciousness, mm -hmm. and yet so much richness and very dark rich texture and of course that part of that was her voice but part of it is the choice yeah, the harmonic choices <laughs> she was making and all the rest yeah it seems like it was only in this kind of spiritual music that she used that her own voice mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how did that come to happen I, that was a bit of a surprise for all of us really to hear uh, her sing for the first time because she she had never sung before. You know, that wasn't a part of her musical expression, if you will. You know, starting off as a, a young pianist and organist in the church uh, that she attended as a young girl. You know, moving to New York in the early 60s. And she was actually in Paris for a couple of years before that, playing bebop with the likes of uh, Lucky Thompson and then Kenny Clark, some of the originators of bebop music. And know. some of that tape is speaking of the wonders of the internet now is now floating around too that's true you can see uh, footage of her playing uh, i think they played in this club i forgot the name of the club but they did a uh, broadcast a, a televised broadcast each week and fortunately yes yeah, some of that footage was saved but yeah she um was always a great great piano player and she does come out of the bebop school but when she met my father <laughs> You know, her music began to take on other characters and other influences. And when the 70s came about, she got very deep into the synthesizers, of course. I think she's using a, an Oberheim on most of those recordings. That was a synth that she loved to use, beautiful analog synth of the Oberheim. And she loved the sound of strings as well. Most of her early um, impulse records, there's, um, you know, string sections, you know, and oftentimes she was doing the orchestrations and things like that. I think one of the records, Universal Consciousness, uh, Ornette Coleman did a bunch of the uh, orchestrations for the strings, but it was a sound that she really loved. And I, I think when she was able to kind of recreate that sound with, with the synthesizers, I think that was that's something that she really wanted to utilize in the spiritual music. You know? mm -hmm. So what was she like personally? <laughs> I mean, I think you hear it in the music, too. But. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, what can you say? I mean, she was, she was Alice Coltrane, and she was... Uh, and she was uh, uh, Swamini to, to her students, but and she was, you know, mom to me, you know. Um. That's a lot to handle. I'm serious, not to be glib though, honey, but she was raising you and your siblings and had this in clearly very, very deep and evolved spiritual practice sure. with followers. She was traveling to India maybe sometimes twice a year. That's a lot to inhabit simultaneously. Oh, yeah, it was. She was very, very, very unique. Very unique person and had a life, I, I would imagine, like uh, like very few people <laughs> might have. <laughs> but she was very kind and, and very generous, and she was, you know, caring and, uh, you know, and serious, very, very serious. She could be strict at times, but she also could be, you know, a lot of fun and would make you laugh out loud on occasion. She was one of a kind. Yeah, really singular. And uh, one of the things you're going to be doing is paying tribute to her at, at an event here in New York in mm -hmm. just a couple of weeks. Tell me a little bit about that and, and sort of how you're envisioning it. Well, it's, um, yes, an Alice Coltrane tribute, Red Bull. The folks there are the sponsors of uh, the event. Very happy to be working with them. And they, um, yeah, allow us to, you know, present Alice's music in a way we best saw fit. So Red Bull Music Academy does this festival here yes, in New York yes. every summer now. And this is part of this year's offerings. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of a, an interesting juxtaposition, I think. Is the concert going to be divided in half? Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, there is going to be, yeah, two groups performing. Uh, her music. One of the groups is going to be uh, 
some of her students, and they are going to be uh, you know, singing these devotional songs and these beautiful chants. And another group that I'll be performing and will be doing some of her earlier music, more associated with her jazz recordings. Yeah, we're going to try to feature um, a great harpist named Brandy Younger, who I've been working with for some time now. And she's great. And obviously, yeah. your mom had a, an incredible gift as a harpist as well. That's true. That's very true. You know, we did a memorial for her, a service for her in New York. You know, we invited many, many musicians to perform her music and also the the singers, students from the ashram also were all there and performed. Uh, But I knew that I wanted to have a harpist there. We needed a harpist to perform a lot of Alice's music and I <laughs> didn't know any harpists at the time. <laughs> Jazz harpists, not in huge supply. No, no. And uh, but what a lucky thing that Brandy Young is so talented. <laughs> I mean, that was, again, another great gift of the internet. I mean, that was maybe one of the first times that I'd gone, had used, used the internet to kind of audition, if you will, a, a player, you know. I think I just started <laughs> looking <laughs> online for harpists, and I and I came across Brandy's name, and... and uh, I, I'm just envisioning that sh- jazz harp, <laughs> and then you know how when you want to exclude something minus, be minus Alice, <laughs> and see what comes up. I was really, uh, just really thrilled to, to meet somebody who had, had really understood that tradition, that sound, you know, that approach, uh, Alice's approach to playing the harp, and knew Alice's music, you know. Brandy Younger is uh, just an incredible musician. And, and ever since, it's been 10 years now that I, you know, I've been working with Brandy in lots of different uh, situations. But in the, in the previous um, tributes that we did, we did a few tributes for her in the, the years after she passed, you know, where Jerry Allen would, was playing on, on a lot of those gigs. Charlie Hayden uh, made a lot of those gigs as well, Jack DeJanet. Uh, but always with Brandy. We'd always have to have Brandy there. So she'll be performing, of course, with this uh, coming up at the Knockdown Center. Sorry, so it's you, Brandy, and who else instrumentally? Uh, Desron Douglas will be playing bass. I think Reggie Workman will also be playing bass with us. Uh, Jeff Tain Watts will be playing drums. Uh, myself, David Varelis, will be playing piano nice. with us, yeah. And some organ, hopefully. Very nice group of people. You know, you know, my mother, she felt the calling. It was like sort of a directive, I suppose, <laughs> uh, to start an ashram, you know, to start a, you know, a spiritual center. And uh, it existed uh, in a few places, but eventually she found a piece of property in uh, the Santa Monica Mountains of Agora, Agora Hills. Sometime in the 80s, maybe 1983, she bought that property. The ashram still exists, and it still exists in that same piece of land, and a lot of her students are still there. They still have services on Sundays and, <laughs> and classes on Wednesdays, kirtan services as well. And, uh, yeah, it's still it's still very active. And, again, a lot of them are going to be uh, traveling to New York to be a part of the, the tribute um, on the 21st. Yes, yeah.
So that was Journey to Sachidananda with my guest's mother, Alice Colton Toya Sangitananda, and her singers and musicians. And I have questions about this track. <laughs> um, first of all, Journey to Sachidananda is a reference to her guru, her teacher, Sachidananda, right? Yes, 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 yes. And I want to circle back, but also there, there's a clearly at the end, or near the end of that track, there's a male soloist who's very versed in, clearly, in Indian classical music, who's doing all the ornamentation and the gummocks, the slides. Oh, yeah. Who is he? That, I don't know. I don't have that <laughs> answer <Mystery>. for you. <laughs> I had forgotten about that performance there. And so, tell me a little bit about um, how your mom came to find such a, a home in Indian tradition, in the culture, in, and in Hindu practice. She took to it very, very quickly. But, I, you know, I believe it was, again, sort of founded on a, a just a very religious and spiritual principle, I think, that she maintained throughout her whole life, starting when she was young, you know, a young girl. You know, my father was, was investigating a lot of, um, you know, Eastern religions and um, and practices. And it seems like it was a path they went down together in a lot of ways. That's true. It's very true. And it's hard to say who influenced the other more so. <laughs> Clearly my father didn't, you know, he didn't live long enough to travel to India and pursue all of his, you know, spiritual goals, you know, but uh, obviously my mother did. That was during a time in the late 60s and 70s where, you know, spiritual awakening and consciousness was, it was becoming a broader part of the culture here. And he was known too. I mean, Sachidananda wound up giving in kind of an invocation of sorts at Woodstock. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, and the Beatles, of course, were hanging out with uh, the Maharishi. I mean, everyone was sort of looking in that direction. Many people were. And even after people stopped looking in that direction, my mother continued. You know, she continued on. And, mm -hmm. and India was a place that she returned to 
repeatedly, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a documentary I had never seen the footage from before, this BBC series that I'm sure you've seen, of your mom and the violinist, double violinist, Al Shankar, and Zakir Hussein playing together. And it's fantastic, but <laughs> it is completely news to me <laughs> until very recently. And I, I did fancy myself sort of an Indian music freak, and I'd never encountered this footage yeah. before. Yeah, wow, wow, wow. Do you know it? I don't know it personally. I'll have to send it along. <laughs> Please it's, do. <laughs> it's pretty great. <laughs> but, um, yeah, she was. she traveled there... She traveled to India sometimes up to two times per year throughout the 70s, throughout the 80s. Did you uh, guys ever go along or did you stay home? I was only in India one time with her. That was around 2004. But uh, the early trips that she uh, made, my sister would accompany her, often travel with her. And, of course, her students would also travel with her as well. And would they go to the same place, or would they travel around? They uh, they would do a bit of both. You know, I think that they were... My mother would go to see a guru named Sai Baba, and she even had a, an apartment <laughs> there for some time. And clearly found deep meaning and resonance in that particular kind of group of spiritual practices. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, yeah, it was something very uh, very organic, again, with her. You know, again, I, it was founded on, you know, these principles, I think, that she um, she maintained throughout her whole life. She lived and sought that out through her time in the Baptist church and those principles, you know, and I know she maintained <laughs> a lot of that when she found the Eastern philosophies and, and traditions, you know. Yeah, I th- you know, they were you know, maybe kind of one and the same in, in many ways. This, uh, the desire to want to praise the, the higher spiritual ideal, I think it was just, just a part of who she was. What would you like people to know about your mother, either personally or as a musician? Well, you know, she was one of us. I'd like to say that about my father as well. They, people often think that they're, they come from these <laughs> other planets and they're they're so far removed from uh, the rest of uh, humanity and human beings in general. Uh, I, I can't feel that way. It's true. <laughs> they were earthbound, just like us. I think that gives them more power, really, to recognize that they achieved so much as people, as people, as human beings, just like uh, any and all of us. You know, Alice Coltrane was, uh, you know, from Detroit. <laughs> And she was raised on spirituality and bebop. Not that those things aren't the same thing. They are, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and she was able to, to find herself and her voice, and she recognized the, the power of communicating and spreading this very joyous music. She just wanted to praise a higher power, you know, through her work and her, her message. And uh, I believe she did. And what better legacy could there possibly be? I agree. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much, Robbie Coltrane, for coming in and joining us. Thank you, Anastasia. Thank you so much. That's Robbie Coltrane talking with NPR music reporter and producer Anastasia Tsilkas about the album World Spirituality Classics 1, The Ecstatic Music of Alice Coltrane, Turya Sangeeta Nanda. It's out now on Luwakabop. For NPR Music, it's All Songs Considered. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Internet Essentials from Comcast. Connecting more than 6 million low-income people to low-cost, high-speed Internet at home. So students are ready for homework, class, graduation, and more. Now they're ready for anything. 